We all think about what we eat. We plan our meals or count carbs or do any number of other things when it comes to what we put in our bodies. But do you ever think about the flavor of what you consume? Sure you do. What we eat or drink either tastes good or it doesn't. In fact, taste is the number one consideration in what we consume. Yet, there is more to it than just like or dislike. And there's even a whole industry dedicated to it. Flavor is memory. Flavor is feeling. Flavor is science. Flavor is art. Flavor is Fona. Welcome to Fona's Flavor University podcast, where we explore the science, artistry, and industry behind flavor. As you probably grasped from the introduction to the podcast, the science of flavor is many things. Sometimes the science explains the odd and unusual, but sometimes it adds to the mystery or the macabre. In today's episode, we are going to talk to Fona scientist Paul Hoffman about weird flavor science. Hey, Paul. Hey, Corey. So glad you're here today. Really jazzed about this topic. Can't wait to dive into the more mysterious side of flavor, if you want to go that way. Uh, but Paul, why don't we start like we always do? Please introduce yourself and tell us what you do at Fona. Sure. Thanks, Corey. So my name is Paul Hoffman, and I'm a scientist here at Fona. I've been with Fona for the last going on just over six years now. And so I focus in on flavors in applications that are more in the savory realm, but I focus mainly on snacks, prepared foods, and in fact, pet care. Now, tell us, Paul, why did we ask you to come do this kind of odd side of our podcast? Uh, I think I tend to span the flavors that are a little bit on the stranger side of things. Uh, and also, I just have a passion for weird foods. I got really excited. Corey and I have been exchanging some ideas over the past couple of weeks. And uh, I'm really excited about the toe cocktail and lab-grown meat, but also some other fun, weird regional U.S. foods. All right. So that's kind of a teaser probably for the end of our conversation here. So because uh, that's kind of the more the more wild side of things we're going to talk about. So why don't you talk about maybe a day in your life? Let's talk about work a little bit before we get into the, the science. Sure. So uh, a day of work for me is really interesting. I, I'm really excited about what I get to do. But every day I get to come in and figure out what kind of projects I'm going to work on, usually spanning anywhere from snacks, prepared foods. So some days are just testing flavors and water and tasting them and making sure that they're right. Other days are putting those flavors into fun applications like vegan burgers or snacks, popcorn, chips, seasonings, things like that. So what are the more fun or strange applications that you've done? Uh, some of the more fun stuff is really the prepared food side for me. Uh, definitely where my passion lies in, in the culinary world and, and part of my background. But I, I've had some really interesting, challenging projects going for low-sodium sauces. The pet food applications also tend to add some interesting ideas and, and ingredients that you have to use. We've had a lot of experience with cricket and animal-based proteins coming in and looking for solutions with those. And that's definitely more on the wild side of what I do normally. But normally, it's just potato chips and things like that. Yeah. And making things taste like potato chips. I know I was here for a couple of years before you offered me my first bag of crickets. I Yep. Sounds about right. Yeah, I think I think they were a ranch flavor or something like that. Yeah, I think they were. Uh, those were the sour cream and onion. That's um, it. yeah, and and the cricket's been an interesting thing. I, the first time I really got exposed to them was at a trade show, and I was traveling with someone at the time who didn't have the greatest tact uh, and said, "No, I don't want to eat your roaches." And so, out of feeling badly, I jumped and was like, "I'll try them." And it was before they'd really gotten the science down, so they still had legs on them. 
And it was pretty horrifying, um, if I'm being totally honest. It was three young people doing a startup, and, and I wanted to encourage them. I think plant and animal proteins and insect proteins are going to have to be a wave of the future. So it was at a time when that industry was pretty rough, and they've come pretty far, but I still don't think I'm behind sour cream and onion uh, crickets. I feel like crickets have become almost passe. Like, it's kind of normal now. I think it is. I, I honestly think, and it, it, it depends on where you're from too, right? You know, escamole is a really popular uh, Mexican dish that's made out of the hatched larva of, of a certain type of ant, in fact, known as the farty ant, uh, which is an odd choice of all of the ants to choose that. But uh, so it, it depends on what you grew up with. For some people, it's very normal. For some people, it's still pretty wild. I think in the United States, we're probably going to see it mostly as, as a powder and like an added fortified protein as opposed to it in its full format. But I think there's time for us to get there. So you don't see anybody going to the store and buying a uh, bag of tortilla chips that they're expecting to be like Cool Ranch, but it turns out they're Cool Ranch crickets. I don't. I don't yet. Mm. I think I'd be on board for that, though. Yeah. I, I'm usually on the wild side. But in that same vein of Latin American cuisine, I know there's a specific cheese out there that is served with the living maggots still inside of it. Uh, it's a white cheese, and it's it's served... Sorry, what you guys aren't seeing is uh, our producer here shaking her head as I'm describing this, as if to say, not in this lifetime. And I agree. I don't know if I'd be that adventurous for that still alive kind of thing. I would um, love to know the reasoning. Like, what, what the defense is. Like, why... You, you gotta sell me real hard on these maggots add something spectacular to this cheese for me to be down. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was an episode of Bizarre Foods with Andrew Zimmern, who okay. I believe is the gentleman's name. Makes uh, sense. Which is odd, because fun fact about him, and he'll say this on his TV, for those of you who are kind of foodies or watch Food Network, is he's eaten all this stuff. I mean, bugs to, to whatever else, uh, but will not eat a hot dog. <laughs> will not do it. And I mean, I don't know what that says for hot dogs, but yep. uh, you know, I don't see the problem. But then again, I don't ask how they're made. <laughs> so yeah, so as, as I was saying, like, I mean, I'm seeing crickets as kind of a passe kind of thing. I mean, you can walk into any like tourist trap and they have, you know, scorpion lollipops, so to speak. Absolutely. Um, but actually, going back to, to hot dogs, didn't you do some kind of odd amalgamation of hot dog or making hot dog into something that doesn't normally go in? Yeah, I've actually done that a couple times. Um, hot dog's definitely one of the flavors when, when people who aren't super familiar with flavor are like, give me a weird flavored thing. Hot dog comes up really often for whatever reason. And I think my first foray with uh, hot dog flavored things that were just wrong was in fact a hot dog flavored frosting for a cupcake. And uh, the, the folks who ate it, it was part of a, a bit of a gimmicky thing. And when they tasted it, they were pretty upset with me and so made me also taste it just to make sure that we all got to suffer. Hmm. So back to the cheese real quick. Please. I, I just double checked and it's called Kasu Marzu. Kasu Marzu. And it, in 2009, it was just added to the Guinness World Record. It was proclaimed the world's most dangerous cheese. Ah. And in, in that same vein, there is a competition where they actually take a wheel of cheese, I believe it's in England somewhere, and they roll it down a hill and these people line up and chase it down the hill. And if you catch the cheese, you keep it. But people get very injured doing that because it's a very steep hill. But another fun thing for everyone to look up. But sorry, I, I totally, I'm going around, you know, around, I love around it. here. So this is perfect. Going back to hot dog cupcakes. Yes. So was it okay? Uh, you know, no, just frankly, no. Could it have been made uh, more palatable? Sure. But no, 
one of the funny things about flavor and, and eating is whenever you change the format of a flavor that's very expected and very well known, it really ruins it. The second you take hot dog flavor and it, you turn it into a sweet paste, there's just something not right about it. That as well flavored as it's going to be, I think most people are going to recoil a little bit. Uh, a great example for me is I've never been able to figure out why, but the Doritos had a late night cheeseburger flavor not too yep, long ago. That. And it tasted exactly like a McDonald's cheeseburger to me. And I couldn't eat it. It was just too weird to have the taste of McDonald's, but in a crunchy format. Hmm. I mean, when you say hot dog flavored cupcake or hot dog flavored frosting, I mean, I just think of meat smoothie in my head. I'm out. Right, right. Yeah. I'm, and there's, there's, there's nothing really nice about that connotation. But in that same context, you do take things that don't normally work and are surprised, I'm sure, oftentimes. I mean, absolutely. Something to do with chips or, or s'mores or something like that? Oh, yeah. So, so one of the other things we did with that group was uh, we actually did a s'mores flavored potato chip. And very strangely, it worked. I think just the fattiness and, and potato chips are generally savory, but as a base, they're not inherently savory and can take some really interesting flavors. We've also done some really fun stuff with uh, apple pie potato chips and, and just kind of changing, uh, making it more of a sweet format and just kind of playing with that. Yeah, I would definitely, I'm down for that savory sweet combo on a lot of things. I mean, French fries in my milkshake, bacon on vanilla ice cream is always great, especially if it's crispy. If it's not, I wouldn't touch it. Fair. It's an important piece. Yeah. 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 And, you know, where I'm from in the Northeast, like we, we have a fair that puts cheddar cheese on apple pie, which might be right. something here too. I don't know. Yeah. It, it, we hear about it. it that, that's one that oddly enough is hard for me to get behind, but it seems pretty minor in the scheme of things. So we're talking about crickets. Right. And, yeah. You know, we've already covered over cris crickets and, you know, uh, wormy cheese. So, yeah. Uh, and I draw the line apparently at, at cheese on apple pie. <laughs> So does my wife. She would not. I told her about it. We went to the fair that serves this and she was like, I'm no, I'm just normal pie, please. Yeah. So far, we've kind of talked about a lot of things that still are food. Sure. I mean, still are consumable as far as, you know, you've had it in another format and you like it that way. Sure. What about things that you don't normally see as food being food for other people or you're eating it and you don't even know it? Are there are there foods out there that contain something that you don't expect. And if you were told, you probably swear off of it. I'm sure there are. I think that there are a lot of ingredients that come from sources that you would never know about. And so there are things like that throughout the industry that, you know, I think are, they're not bad. It's not scary. It's just a little creepy once you hear about it. Yeah. I mean, you, you hear constantly in pop culture of how many spiders you eat while you're sleeping <laughs> sure. or something like that, which by the way, is a myth. Right. But I mean, throughout your lifetime, you're probably going to ingest something that you didn't necessarily intend on the first look. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you've ever eaten a fig, right? Absolutely. What's what's that story? So a fig, uh, it, it's been an interesting thing is I've spent some time working in the plant-based and vegan space. And, and there's a weird list of things that aren't vegan uh, that you would totally expect to be. And fig is a prime example. So figs require pollination by a wasp that actually dies as part of the pollination. And the fig then forms around the wasp and therefore is no longer a vegan item. So <laughs> that's that's an odd thing out there. I mean, is that is it all figs or is it just a certain type of fig? Is that what you... All figs are pollinated by wasps and, and therefore there are no vegan figs, depending on what your definition of vegan is. Huh. Well, I mean, I am not vegan, uh, but here's a, a quick warning for those of you out there. Lay off the figs. Yeah, yeah. You might get an unpleasant surprise. 
keeping on that same train of eating things that we didn't intend. A lot of times, certain things are made into other forms, powders or liquids, and they add flavor to other things. Can you give me some examples of, of those things, of those additives that are used in flavor to you know, give a certain punch or give a certain flavor that isn't created by just one extract? Absolutely. I think a really great example right now is um, with the popularity of umami is anchovies. Anchovies are a great ingredient to add umami flavor to things. And you're going to you see them in all kinds of formats, um, like you said, in anchovy powders, pastes. They're also a, a very popular ingredient in fish sauces, which are kind of like a, a funky soy sauce that add a, a really interesting, pungent umami hit to a dish. And what's actually kind of cool about it is it can be traced back to like really ancient times. One of the first sauces that we have ever recorded is a sauce called garum. And it's from ancient Roman times. And it was actually fermented anchovies. And it was something they'd kind of put in clay pots and let sit out and form all these fermented flavors and, and nuances and complexity and used it pretty thoroughly in different dishes on pasta and things like that. So it's something we've been doing kind of without all that science for a very long time. And, and with the popularity of umami and the science behind it and the focus on it, we've really kind of honed in on these ingredients. Um, so other things that are, you know, uh, not so common in the U.S., a uh, great example is uh, Vegemite and Marmite, which are, you know, yeast extracts that are, are popular in Australia and the U.K. as, you know, they put it on their toast there as a spread. But I see a lot of recipes using it as, a, as an umami booster alongside things like anchovies. I made that a point when I went on my honeymoon to Australia was to try Vegemite because I'd never had yeah. it before. What'd you think? Uh, no. Yeah, it's horrifying on its, its own. I could see, I could get used to it. Yeah. You know, if it was one of those things like a culture, sure. you know, like when you're from a certain area, you could right. swear by something, but somebody else from not that culture tries it yeah. and is just tapped out immediately. Yeah, I think, I think that's pretty accurate. I think it's starting to change a little bit. I think food has become such a popular thing that we're getting more and more adventurous people. But the one thing I think we capitalize very well on is, is we do a great job of bringing all these different cuisines together and the flavors and paying homage to a lot of really interesting pieces of different cultures and their cuisines. And what do you do if somebody comes to you with a flavor request that's of that kind of inclination, of something that's not exclusively American, something that's more of a different culture. It's really one of my favorite things to get, honestly, because I get to learn something new. And, and I always try and seek out people who know the food inherently. It's really important to me to try and you know live up to the expectation of, of what the dish should be. We're lucky at Phonet have a, a really great group of people who are from all over the United States and all over the world. Um, and so it's always great to be able to seek out people and, and just run things by them and, and work towards a gold standard to really use as your guide. So it's really using other people's experiences Absolutely. to help influence that flavor. For sure. Because, I mean, obviously, you're not going to 100% know what that cultural food is supposed to taste like. Absolutely. And flavor and taste and food is as much subjective and objective as it is just an inherent memory, a nostalgia. You know, it, you grew up with something, so you have an expectation of what it should be. And it, the smell, the aroma, the flavor of it evokes something more than just what it tastes like. And it's important to try and capitalize on that, too. Yeah. And these foods have a history. Absolutely. You know, they have a heritage that we've not experienced, you know, that we want to experience. And I think that is definitely the credit to the United States as far as willingness to try it. Absolutely. And like you said, it's that melting pot. And I think we want to experience this stuff. Whether or not we're going to like it is up to us. But it's also that, you know, 
you smell something really gross or you taste something really different and you call that person over to say, hey, try, you know, come smell this. <laughs> like that's the first thing you do. Yes. You know, and it's, it's because we all want to experience that, that newness. But going back to the, to the history side of things, I feel like the history of food comes with a lot of story. And those stories obviously have both positive and not so positive stories, not so positive backgrounds. What I'm thinking here are the different restaurants that have like sort of supernatural stories that go with them sure. because of their food or because of where they're located. Absolutely. I know from personal experience, I used to work at a Four Diamond Hotel. Uh-huh. Um, it was It's an old, large, it looks like a castle. Yeah. It literally looks like a castle. Sure. And they had one restaurant that was in what they called the mansion, because that's what it was. It was a giant stone mansion built on a golf course. And in that restaurant, there was a story. And as a matter of fact, around October or Halloween time, we would get guests calling us in reservations, asking us for rooms in the mansion because people thought it was haunted. Sure. Uh, The restaurant in particular. When truly I never experienced any of this, this is all hearsay, you know, from right. the wait staff right. and whatnot. Uh, but they have tons of stories in the restaurant about things rolling off counters, knives moving, doors and opening and shutting, and of course, the infamous breeze from nowhere. Sure. A lot of times in the restaurant, there was a fireplace, and the former owner, whose wife used to spend time in the restaurant before it was a restaurant, passed away, and people say that she's still there. Sure. They would explain that books would come flying off the fireplace where she would stand, and so on. And again, I didn't experience any of this, but still, what a way to sell a hotel, right? Absolutely. Now, not being from the Chicago area, are you familiar with any restaurants like that or haunted flavors, perhaps? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, Chicago has, uh, I think, one of the most notable haunted uh, restaurant locations in the Red Lion. And so it's it's really uh, famous. And and what's interesting is everybody kind of reports the same apparition from the Red Lion, and that is a, a woman on the stairs who uh, who ends up in the women's bathroom and very specifically the last stall of the women's bathroom. But everyone goes to, to kind of get a feel for you know if they if they feel or uh, experience this. And I myself have never experienced it, but uh, I oddly enough worked uh, one of my early jobs in the culinary world was I was a, a cook at a hospital in uh, the town I went to school in. And in what I would kind of call an air of design, the morgue was on the same floor as the kitchen. So anytime you had to bust the garbage out at the end of the night, you had to walk past the morgue. And every single one of my coworkers had had an experience with some sort of apparition uh, while taking the garbage out, whether it was, you know, just feeling something, walking through a cold patch. And uh, most notably, someone said that they knocked the wheel right off of the garbage trailer. So I've actually eaten, I was in California, and there was a restaurant called The Mill on the way to Redondo Beach. And it's this gorgeous drive. Sure. uh, Right on the edge of the, on the edge of, yeah, on the edge of our continent, on the edge of the state. And the, evidently, it's like the most haunted restaurant on that section of California because okay. you could probably throw a stone in this country and hit the most haunted something. Right, or right. But yeah, I mean, we had pictures taken. We're taking pictures, looking for ghost orbs, and, you know, <laughs> looking at our food, going, was this, right. who was this prepared by, you know, Zombies. Yeah. Yep. No. Well, I think it's a funny thing, too, because I mean, I think it, 
oddly enough, has some similarities with the way we experience taste. I think it's all a perception thing. You know, I think if you tell someone there's a ghost there, I think that there's a good part of the population that's going to see a ghost. Um, and if you tell someone it's going to taste like something, there's a good part of the population that's going to taste it. And I think a little fear makes, makes the food taste better. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Paul. Very serious topic that we're going we're gonna to touch on here now, and, and that is candy corn. Oh, pro or con? Or for or against, I should say. Oh, man, this is... I, I don't know uh, if I'm comfortable going on the record at the fact that I do like candy corn. It's fair. It's fair. I will eat it. I, I don't seek it out. I, I would agree with that. I, I don't think... It's been a long time since I've been like, oh, I need to go get some candy corn. But if I see it, I'll eat it. Yeah. Now, funny, the, I, I believe the story, the history behind that is that it's actually supposed to be witch's tea. <laughs> uh, but also, oh. if you place it around a cylindrical object and you pile it up, it does look like corn. Absolutely. Essentially, it's what? Just caramel, caramel? Yeah, yeah. Just a, just kind of a, a nondescript sweet flavor at this point that I think most people would just kind of categorize as candy corn. Yeah. And the reason, the reason I call it witch's teeth is because when I was a kid, you remember they used to have like parties where you, you know, put like bandanas around your head or cover your eyes and then put your hands in certain things. <laughs> sure. Do you remember, like, what other things were there? There was, like, peeled grapes. Peeled were grapes eyeballs. were eyeballs, yeah. I remember that. And then spaghetti brains. Yep, absolutely like that. And then, uh, right, they usually finish that off with, uh, I don't remember the name of the dessert, dessert, but it was, like, for little kids, and it looked like a mud patch with gummy worms and all that. And oh, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of uh, playing had, like, with Oreo that. like, crumb topping. Yeah, and, exactly. And putting it underneath. Yeah, I feel like you're eating, you know, worms and dirt mm-hmm. kind of a thing. I think that's actually what it was called. Well, it might be. Yeah, like, it, sounds, would, it sounds good at least. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's the simplest explanation. <laughs> right. All right. So before we get into the, the two topics we promised from the beginning, sure. let's talk about some takeaways. I know this has been kind of an out there conversation that we've been having, but what are th- maybe two or three takeaways that you can give about using unusual flavors? Sure. I, I think one of the things is, you know, know when to fight against a flavor and know when to go with it. I think that there are a lot of flavors um, and times when you initially think you need to be masking something. I think bitter is a great example. But I think sometimes we need to look at maybe leaning into the bitter and going with a grapefruit profile or something that's known to be inherently a little bitter um, and actually kind of using those off notes um, in your favor. And when you can't, then work on masking them and neutralizing as opposed to just trying to overcome with a characterizing flavor. And then I think also look for innovative ways and flavors to add complexity and nuance and layers to what you're doing. You know, chili is great, but when you have chili with all kinds of different chili peppers and spices that you've roasted, and there's just all kinds of layers of flavor within a dish, it can make it go a lot farther. And the same notion fits for snacks and other items. Add layers and complexity to to really intrigue your uh, your consumers and it just gives dishes something that we like to call the gimmies, uh, where you don't know exactly know what you like about it, but you find yourself going back and, and not able to kind of stop eating whatever it is. Cheez-Its. Cheez-Its. Great example. Yeah. Goldfish for me. But yeah. yeah, yeah. What, what flavor? Uh, just the regular ones. No. But, but, but when they had the flavor blasted nacho, Still I was no. all about the flavor blasted nacho. <laughs> what's, your, what's your flavor? I'm, I'm a Parmesan guy. I've always oh, been. Always been. That's actually, a, I think that's actually a pretty unusual one. I don't think I've gotten a lot of but I did get the weirdest one recently, which was uh, someone straight up told me that their favorite one was the the saltine, like just the plain mm-hmm. cracker. And I, you know, I worry about that person a little bit. Yeah. I'm not sure they have joy in their life. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay. So as promised, I'm going to set the scene for everybody. 
We are in Yukon territory <laughs> in the early 1920s. There are several miners in that area looking for any hint of a shiny golden mineral. It could be gold, it could be jewels, it could be anything. A lot of these miners are risking life and limb to find the stash. One particular individual, and this is unconfirmed, fell foot first into a patch of ice while looking for their fortune. Needless to say, he didn't find it. But he did gain another type of notoriety. You see, when you spend too much time in cold water, as most of us know, you experience some kind of frostbite. Well, this individual happened to have frostbite in his big toe. That big toe was amputated and somehow found its way to the sourdough saloon. And while at the sourdough saloon, one individual, the man who owns it, Captain Dick Stevenson, was actually able to make more money off of that toe than that individual who lost it ever made in his lifetime. <laughs> and what happens is that when you go to the sourdough saloon, you can ask for the sour toe shot. And what that is is exactly what you're thinking. It is this man's frostbitten toe in a shot. And you can drink it fast, you can drink it slow, but while taking the shot, your lips must touch the toe. And you then get, for drinking this shot, you get a certificate signed by the captain himself saying that you took the shot. Costs about five bucks. <laughs> so in the interim, and, I, and I've done a little research on this, I sent you the video, Paul. Yep. This captain actually has gone through three toes in his tenure at the at the sourdough saloon as you do as you do because you know you lose it uh, right. actually it's more of people accidentally swallow it and there is a fine for swallowing it and i believe it's somewhere in the in the thousands who swallows a big toe i don't know but he then has to recover the toe which i mean there's nobody out there saying oh take mine take mine but he has had people will the toe to him as well as he has willed his own yeah so several questions spring to mind about this paul what do you think it tastes like? Uh, well, I I would immediately guess like just chemically because I'm uh, imagining that this has to be in some way a preserved toe. I can't imagine he's just uh, got a raw toe in. Uh, yeah, no, it is black. Yeah, yeah. So I'd imagine that it would have some formaldehyde notes, which, you know, uh, there are a lot of aldehydes in, in flavors, not formaldehyde in particular, but flavor families. And he does uh, serve it to the individual on a plate with salt. Uh -huh. uh, so the toe is on like a pile of salt before they put it in the shot. Good. Uh, I, I assume that's a, a, a low-rent disinfection step that he takes. <laughs> and if you had to choose, what drink would you take it in? Because he used to do it in a larger glass of like, I think it was like a champagne or something. Uh, and he stopped doing that because people were just drinking the champagne and... Uh, pure guess. corn ethanol i want it in the highest proof possible thing ever uh to kill anything that could possibly be uh, remotely growing on said toe but i can also just go on the record didn't take a lot of thinking it's going to take a lot more than a certificate to get me to uh, drink a shot with a toe in it i'm totally in uh, I will yeah pay the five bucks yeah and i just want a picture when i'm done that's fair 
Yeah. Teach their own. You know, I, you know, I've done, I've done a number of food challenges and most of them are certificates. And I think that's one I definitely would have to pass. So now for a lighter topic. (laughs) Uh, No, but in all honesty, we've been talking about, you know, insects. We've been talking about cupcakes. We've been talking about things that are actually consumed. Right. But there's one food out there and there's one possible meat source that we never talk about and people don't consider. And some scientists think it's a shame. And I'm talking about, of course, Soylent Green. There we go. Which, of course, as many of the Twilight Zone fans will know, is people. It is people. But this, this is not a new concept for people to think of. I mean, I, I believe there's a scientist or lab-grown meat. Can, can you describe that or explain that to me, Paul? Yeah, absolutely. So, so with kind of the advent of, of lab-grown meat and that as a potential source for um, animal-based proteins, one scientist, Richard Dawkins, actually got uh, kind of in, down the rabbit hole of, well, could we grow human meat? And if we did, what would it taste like? Um, and so it really kind of sparked a, an interesting discussion over the ethics of it, because obviously the ethics behind not eating human meat are you'd have to injure or kill a p- person. Uh, and then there's also the health reasons, and that is that, you know, you could catch diseases from humans because they're communicable. And so you don't want to be sharing human meat because you run the risk of catching a disease. So this would kind of take away those two hinge pins of not eating human meat. Uh, and so it's it's definitely something that's being talked about right now in terms of the lab-grown meat community is what would it take to grow a human culture cell? And I'm not here for the ethics of this uh, to argue <laughs> them uh, one way or another. I mean, I've never talked to a cannibal. I know there are specific islands within the world that we are, you know, as a Western civilization, do not go to right? because uh, we will not walk out of them. Yep. But I mean, if it's if it's something to try, I might I might give it a shot. I'm yeah. give it a shot. Yeah. And, and just to be clear, this is nothing that any of us have ever tried uh, or are working with. This is all theoretical in the lab-grown meat community. There's a community for that? There is. Yeah. Anyways. So, Paul, we've, we've kind of gone a little far out there, and your disclaimer is definitely warranted. But what are the pros of this discussion, of, of this discussion of human meat? So, I, really, it's about lab-grown meat and, and the potential for sustainable solutions for our food chain down the road. Right now, the way that we farm meat uh, is really not sustainable, and it's it's not a way to feed a growing population of the globe. So lab-grown meat is, is just one of many potential sustainable options we have for continuing to feed the nation and, and the globe. Absolutely. Well, thanks for bringing that back in for me, Paul. I appreciate it. That's it for Fona's Flavor University podcast. I'm Corey Doucette, and I'd like to thank our special guest, Paul Hoffman. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, the flavor of Fona is the flavor of life. So go out and taste it. <laughs>